Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Good stuff. Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs 13. If you need a Bible, we have some available. Uh, that we could certainly bring over to you. We'd like you to follow along so you can uh, read the word for yourself, see it there. Oftentimes by hearing and seeing, we are re- we remember uh, in a greater uh, way later on. So um, we have them available and you can keep it if you don't have one. We uh, made our way just a little bit over halfway through Proverbs 13 the last time we were together. So we're going to finish up the chapter uh, this morning. And in the process of doing so, let me remind you that the last time we were together before Christmas, the last time in the book of Proverbs, we did a study that was called Revering the Counsel of God's Word. And it primarily came from verse 13 and 14 of the chapter. So look at that again. Those verses, Proverbs chapter 13, verses 13 and 14 says, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And you may recall at that time, I I said, I don't think that that's a threat. I don't think God is saying, if you don't, then I will. One of those things. I think it's just a statement of reality. If you ignore these things, you do so to your peril and the consequences you will face. God's word, God's wisdom, we've been studying the wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs, is designed for our good. So if you look at that verse a little more closely, those two verses there, his teachings are meant to be a fountain of life for us. That's a positive statement. They bring life into our lives, and they keep us, as it says in the second part of the verse, from the snares of death. So if you will, that's a negative. Do these things positive. Stay, keep from these things, which is negative. That's what God's word is designed to do. They're designed to give life and to keep us from death. But if his teachings are going to do us any good, then we have to be open to receiving those teachings. We have to be open to listening to them and put those teachings into practice. And so we've been spending a lot of time in our study of the book of Proverbs looking at this idea of being teachable. Are you teachable? Now, oftentimes I I find this. There's sort of this process where we grow up and we feel, "I, I got it all down. I know it. It, It's the proverbial, you know, the teenager who thinks they know everything. And so they have to learn that they don't know everything, and so they need to be teachable. But then I think the same thing happens. We get going in life a little bit, and we realize how little we know, and so we're calling mom and dad up who before didn't know anything. We're like, could you help me here? I don't know how to, you know, do this or do that. And so we're realizing what we don't know, but then we hit a groove, and we're in our 30s, we're in our 40s, and suddenly we know everything again. And we can get into that process of not being teachable any longer. But the Lord would have us be teachable through the entire process till we come to the end of our days. And so we've been seeing that in our study of the book of Proverbs. If we're going to grow in any way, then we must continue to remain teachable. Now, if you look at verse 18, it's not just being teachable. So not just, all right, go ahead, give me what you got. I'm sitting here, I'm willing to learn, I'm I'm willing to listen to what you have to say, but it has to go beyond that. So look at verse 18, it says, poverty and disgrace comes to the one who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. And so it's not just that we're willing to sit and go ahead, tell me what you have to tell me, but we're willing to put these things, things into practice. Notice it talks about ignoring instruction. The second half of the verse talks about heeding reproof. 
And so if these words, these teachings are going to have any value to us, then they must be put into practice. So multiple things I think we learn from this verse. Number one, if you will not be corrected or taught, then you'll never move forward in life. We've been talking about that already. Number two, if you're humbly willing to receive necessary correction, then the result of that humility is that you will grow and you will advance. As it says in the verse there, uh, that person will be honored. So if you're humbly willing to receive necessary correction, the result of that humility is that you will advance forward. You'll grow, you'll advance, that is, you'll be honored. And the third thing that we learn from this verse in so many words is something that is told to us in the New Testament, and that is this. It's not the hearers of the law that are rewarded or justified, but the doers. And so we read in Romans chapter 2, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So again, if you notice what Solomon says in verse 18, he says, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. And then he goes on, he speaks about heeding reproof and being honored. And so in this room, we can learn these things. We can become experts in the book of Proverbs. We can become experts in the Bible. We could win all of our ribbons from the contest they have for memory verses and all of those things. And we can know our Bibles backwards and forwards and be able to win the trivia contest. But if we're not heeding these instructions, and the only way these words are going to have any positive impact on our lives is if we heed the instructions. That is, that we do not ignore them. Because you can know all the truth but if you ignore the truth, what good is knowing it, right? You can know all the truth, but if you ignore it, what good is knowing it? And I would even say this. I think a case can be made from Scripture. You're better off not knowing the truth than knowing the truth and ignoring it. And so what good is it going to do if you don't put it into practice? James speaks well of this. And we've quoted James a number of times in our study of Proverbs. Some, someone once said that, oh, I'm sure a lot of people did, but that the book of James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I wonder if that's why we're quoting it so much. But James speaks of this in the New Testament. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then he goes away at once, forgetting what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So our takeaway from Proverbs 18, verse, excuse me, 13, verse 18, be not just hearers of the word, which is good, but be a doer of the word also. Amen? All right, now we continue, verse 19. It says, now a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but the turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. Now, if you look at the opening verse, a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, it sounds as if the author, Solomon, is making the same point that he made back in verse 12. Now, that was two weeks ago, so I'll remind you. Verse 12 says, hope deferred makes uh, the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. It sounds like he's essentially restating the same point. However, the contrast found in the second half of the verse seems like Solomon has something else in mind. So we, we certainly know this idea of hope deferred, making the heart sick, that that is true, and a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. Certainly that is true. But I do think Solomon has a different point that he is getting at. And so if you look at the second half of the verse, I'll read it again. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. I think where Solomon is going with this is a contrast between the different uh, pursuits 
of the good man and the wicked man. And again, remember, none of us are good. It's the work that God does in our lives that we can be declared righteous. But I think the contrast that Solomon is looking at is between good men pursuing worthy objects and sinners that are unwilling to depart from evil. So again, he says, but to turn away from evil is an abomination for fo- to fools. The righteous person waits for God uh, to bring about the righteous desire. So God begins to do a work within them, creates a righteous desire within them, and then in patience, they move forward waiting for God to bring that particular thing about. And when he does, what is it to their soul? Look, it's sweet to their soul. Their soul is satisfied when God brings about those righteous desires that he himself planted in them. But the fool cannot bring themselves to turn away from evil. And so the evil desire is there, and they must have it, and they must have it now. The righteous person is willing to wait until God brings it about, but the fool must have it and must have it now. And, and we should know this, it will bring pleasure for the moment. And so the wicked person desires this, and they must have it now, and they get it, and they're psyched up about having it, and it brought pleasure for the moment. But as we see, it does not satisfy, we know this from our own experience, it does not satisfy for the long term, and it does not bring true God-given satisfaction to the soul. And my wife and I, we were watching a program last night about some band, I don't know, somebody from the 90s. Anybody see it? It was on CNN? CNN 1990s? No? Okay. Nobody watches CNN. Alrighty. I understand. Fake news. Is that what it's about? I gotcha. Okay. Anyhow, we're watching this program, and this guy is saying, look, we were a small little band. I think it was Pearl Jam or something. And we're this little small little band. Nobody knew us. We did these clubs, and we were happy. And all of a sudden now we're playing in the biggest arenas in, in America or whatever. And I'm just as, what did he say? I'm just as dissatisfied and my heart is just as longing as it ever was before. Who would have thought? I would have because that's what the Bible teaches. All right, you go running after things that are not God-given desires, your heart will never be satisfied. You're always going to be longing. You'll always be going on to the next thing. Pastor Scott Taransky used to be here with us. He used to always say, you, you go climbing that ladder, then you get to the top of the wall and you realize, what am I doing up here? This isn't where I thought I'd be headed to, where I'd be going. And so it's not a God-given desire. It's not going to bring God-given satisfaction. And so we see that in our particular moment, it, or verse. It'll bring pleasure for a moment, but it will not satisfy for the long term, and it will not bring satisfaction to the soul. Verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Quite simply, if you want to become wise, do we? Yeah. Seek out and hang out with wise people. Pretty easy, right? Seek out wise people that you know and ask to spend time with. Can I come over? and spend time with you. Find ways to interact with that person because the reality is this. We become like the ones we spend our time with. We become like the ones we spend our time with. So if you want to be a fool, hang out with fools, right? If you want to be a fool, hang out with fools. But if you desire to be wise, hang out with those that are wise. A number of years ago, I read a book about Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson, you know, was our president, but before that time, uh, he served as the president of Princeton University. And I think he had taught there, and then he left, and then he came back as the president. And when he came back, he realized, this place is a mess. 
this is late 1800s. No offense to Miss Lawler here, or what's your name now? Harrison now, uh, who went there. But he, he said, it, basically, our school is a bunch of rich kids who think that everything's going to be handed them on a silver platter, and their time here at school is just one big party. Kind of sounds like nowadays in many of our colleges, but that's what he realized in the 1880s. And he felt that the level, if you will, of intellectual curiosity needed to be raised at the school. And so he put in place, late 1880s, maybe early 1900s, he put in place one that all students had to live on campus, right? And that was a rule just up until recently when one kid petitioned because he had some physical disabilities that made living on campus hard like 10 years ago. So for the last 100 and some years, that was still a requirement. The other requirement is that the students had to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner with professors. And so you would go into the cafeteria or whatever it is that they had. There'd be a nice table with silverware and all around and a nice linen cloth and all this kind of stuff. And then you'd have to sit there with the professor. No offense to one of our professors, but most kids don't want to do that. All right. And so you'd have to sit there and then the professor would lead the conversation around the table. So you're not talking about silly 18-year-old stuff anymore. Now you're talking about 45-year-old Princeton professor stuff. And what they found is it raised the level of intellectual curiosity of the school. I think it's pretty amazing. And I think it just speaks to this simple idea. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Paul wrote in the New Testament. He said, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character but I'm trying to influence them. You just be careful. You're influencing them, and they're not influencing you. I've heard it said, you know, if you had like a a grave that was dug, but no uh, casket put in it yet, it's about six feet deep, and somebody were to fall down into that, that hole there, what would be easier, to pull that guy up out or for that guy to pull someone down? And the reality is it's to pull the guy down to the lower level, so to speak. Bad company corrupts good character. Solomon also said this, iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. And so it's not about being around anybody, it's about around the right, being around the right people. Iron sharpens iron. So it's pretty simple. Who do you desire to be? Do you desire to be wise or do you desire to be a fool? Because the companions that you choose will go a long way to determining the type of person that you will become. Now I'll add to that, I think you could also bring into the context of this the things that you watch, the things that you listen to, the things that you read. All of those essentially become your companions. And so the things you watch, listen to, read are going to influence the type of person that you are becoming. We become like the ones we spend our time with. And so you you establish, who do I want to be? What do I want to look like? What kind of person do I want to be? And then you go get it. And you hang out with those particular people. Make sense? All right, very good. Verse 21. Solomon, he says, Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. I I think it's interesting to note here that when we think of a sinner, we think of a person that is in pursuit of sin. But I find it interesting to note that it's sin that is pursuing the sinner. And so it says, Disaster pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good with good. And by that, of course, it is asked, we're talking about uh, the consequences of their sin. And so a person thinks they're in charge, they're running after, I'm going to go get, I'm going to go down this particular path and pursue sin, when in reality, the consequences of that sin are all the while pursuing them. So if you pull back and you just sort of observe this from God's view, so to speak, from a 30,000 foot perspective, 
what we find is that while the sinner may enjoy the pleasures of sin for a moment, they do so just for a moment. As it says in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, they are passing pleasures. Because in the end of all these things, sinners are continually besieged by what somebody has called the hounds of misfortune. That these things just keep coming against them. That their lifestyle will cause physical harm, bad reputation, unintended consequences, loss of possessions sometimes. Sin pursues them and the consequences of their sin. And conversely, as the verse tells us, the righteous enjoy a good reputation, enjoy a safe life, enjoy a confident expectation. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's not a threat. It's just a statement of reality, as uh, Solomon gives it to us. Disaster pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good. And again, if you were to lay out these two alternatives... Solomon is doing that essentially. He's putting these two alternatives that are out there. You can have the pursuit of sin, which leads to disaster, or the pursuit of righteousness, which as the verse says, is rewarded with good. And you can have it without saying, Solomon is saying, which one should you choose? And I think all of us here, we we look at that and we'll say, well, clearly the one that is over here, I want to pursue good. I want to pursue righteousness because that's what the Lord can bless. He continues to draw the contrast. Look at verse 22. He says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A righteous man or woman lives in such a way, and we've been looking at these character traits, diligence, industriousness, frugality, content to live within their means. All of those things that we've been considering, a righteous man or woman lives in such a way that they are able to pass something on when they themselves pass on. That's what Solomon is saying here. The ability to leave an inheritance is a mark of a thoughtful life so that when someone passes on, they're able to leave an inheritance to other. Rather than spending every last dollar they had on themselves, What this righteous man or woman demonstrates is care and concern for those that will come after them. It's just a matter of the heart. Because when I die, I'm not going to be around. In some respects, I don't even care what happens to the rest of you. Because I won't even be here in that sense, correct? But it's a mark of righteousness within a person's heart that even though they won't be here and will have no idea of what goes on after they're, they're not here on the earth, it's a mark of righteousness in a person's heart that they still do care. And that they take steps to assist or to help or to plan ahead into the future. There's a bumper sticker out. Some of you may have it on your cars. But it's usually by retired people. So it's on the back of like an old Buick or something like that. And and there's a sticker that says, Outspending Our Children's Inheritance. You've seen it? I'm just saying. Alrighty, I wouldn't have it on my car. Uh, necessarily here, because a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Now, certainly I think this is speaking financially, leaving a financial inheritance sufficient enough for one's children's children. My grandmother, who uh, didn't make much money in life, um, she left each of her grandchildren $300. And we were blessed. And my mom said, now don't go spend it. She said, buy something that you'll remember grandma by. And so I bought a picture, which I think is in the attic, uh, or something like that, or whatever. But it was her way. It wasn't a lot of money. She didn't have a lot of money. She lived in a little apartment all of her adult life after raising her children or whatever. But it was her way of passing something on. And so I think it, it speaks to financial inheritance, 
sufficient enough that it can go all the way to the grandchildren. But we have to think this has to speak beyond just financial and speaks to this idea of a spiritual heritage, that a good man and a good woman can leave a spiritual heritage long after they are gone. Because the reality is a righteous person may not be able to leave much financially. They may never have made much financially, so they may not be able to leave much of this world's goods to those that come after them, but what they can leave to their posterity is the knowledge of eternal things. And that's something in all of our power to do, whether we have a lot of money in our bank account or not. Spiritually, the person can leave a godly example of what it means to know God and walk in his ways. Just someone that in my grandchildren's mind's eye, they can see my life, and that could be an example for them. You know what? I can walk in that way as well. The, the godly person can leave an example of a life of faith. That we lived our life in such a way that we sought to hear the voice of the Lord and then respond in obedience. That's a life of faith. And we can leave that example to our grandchildren. And I think just even the very practical model of what it means to walk with God, all of that. Disaster pursues sinner, but remember, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Well, that's the example that we can leave even to our grandchildren. You know, one of my favorite passages in Scripture and one of the most amazing Bible studies I've ever heard was by Damian Kyle on Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, And that's a passage about the hall of faith, 11 and 12. The verses, the first couple of verses of 12 explain Hebrews chapter 11. And if you've never heard it, I think it's called It Can Be Done um, by Damian Kyle. Look it up. It's amazing, and just take some time to meditate on it. But the reason why it's one of my most favorite passages in the Bible is because we have this example of ordinary men and women. Now, we know their names now, but nobody knew their names before. And these were ordinary men and women that responded to God in faith, and God worked through their lives. They never left any of us any financial benefit but they left us a great spiritual benefit, those men and women of faith. They left an inheritance to their children's children's children. And we are how many generations removed from those individuals. And may that be said of each one of us as well, that we might leave an inheritance. Let's continue to verse 23. It says, Now the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Now, there's a variety of ideas, of ideas as to what this verse may be saying, uh, and it ranges from d- hard work and diligence all the way to issues of social justice, so there's a variety of things that are out there. If you're reading a different version than I am, I read the ESV, which in this case is similar to the NIV. If you're reading, for instance, the King James Version, then you've already noticed that my verse is very, very different from what your verse says. And so I'll I'll make the comparison here. And the reason is, is because some of the words that are used in Hebrew, they can equally mean this or they can equally mean that. And so the interpreter, the uh, translators had to make a decision. All right, what is Solomon saying? Is he talking about this or is he talking about that? And this instance, and look, we go right through the whole Bible. And whenever I come across a verse that's a little challenging and it, it seems to differ in different translations, do I ignore it? No, right? Please say no. No, I remember you take time every time to point it out here. There's a reason for these things, why this translator went that way, that translator went a different way. This is one of those verses where it's very different. I don't think your faith needs to be rocked by this necessarily. But in the ESV, it says this. 
that the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. The ESV seems to understand that Solomon is seeking to communicate that the poor, they would be able to do a lot, even with a little, because of their hard work, their diligence, all those things. But sadly, as the latter half of the verse, they're not able to do so because it's swept away through injustice. That's how the ESV understands it. Now, the King James Version, I like the, the poetic aspect of this verse. It says, much food is in the tillage of the poor, but there is, there is that is destroyed for want of judgment. Now, that seems to come at it from a very different angle, doesn't it? The King James seems to understand that Solomon is communicating this, that the poor, though they don't have much, they appreciate the little they do have, and they make the very most out of it. Every inch of ground that they possess, they make the most out of. So in that case, then, both versions are communicating the importance of hard work, of diligence, industriousness, etc. Both of those do. Now, the ESV speaks of it in the future. In a sense, the poor would, if given the opportunity, The King James seems the poor do because they value all that they have. But in both cases, hard work, diligence, industriousness. Now, where the verses diverge and they go a different direction, which gives really a a completely different meaning, is in the latter half of the verse. So again, the ESV, it says, but it it is swept away through injustice. They're not able to, to make a living even with a little because injustice or the powers that be take it all away. The King James version there says, but there is that which is, that is destroyed for want of judgment. And so they seem to, the ESV and NIV seem to have concluded what I've said, that it's because of injustice that they don't have what they have. And so then the, the lesson for us would be what? Stop being unjust. Stop mistreating people because you're more powerful than them or, or something like that. Don't be like that. Treat people well, treat people on, honorably, and don't hinder them from accomplishing good things in their lives. That's what the takeaway is from how the ESV writes it. The King James Version, as I said, goes a different direction, and it's because of their understanding of the word that is translated judgment in the King James Version. The same word uh, is translated injustice or justice up in the ESV, but it's translated in the King James as judgment. And the Hebrew word, it's a, it doesn't really matter. It's this word mishpat, and it can be translated either way. And it is equally throughout the Bible. And typically, it, we, the context explains what it is. In this case, it doesn't. And so they decided that judgment, King James decided that judgment is the right way to go. And so then the point would be this. The point of the King James understanding of the verse is that even the poor person with very little, with good judgment, can accomplish much. Whereas the rich person, with a lot, with bad judgment, is going to accomplish little. Is that true? Whether that's what really it was meant to say or not because of the way it was translated, that is certainly a true concept. So we can take that away because other places in the Scripture teach that idea. The old expression you may have heard, waste not, want not, that's essentially what this verse would be communicating, that we should be wise with what we have, and we will find that we have plenty. And so I think of folks, and many of them are, are dying off now, but I think of folks that grew up in the Depression era. And though they were living in the 1970s and 80s and 90s when you know, Americans were thriving financially, they grew up in the 1930s and early 1940s and never forgot the value of a penny. And so they waste not, they wasted not, and thus they wanted not. 
And here, many of us, we're young, we have, we've always had plenty in our homes or whatever, and we're like, yeah, Grandpa's so frugal. Grandpa saves up the little chips of ice, or not ice, um, of soap, and puts them in a little baggie kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? They had these little mesh baggies, and you would save up all the chips, and you'd put them in there, and you'd, have, you'd, you'd use it until it was gone. And I'm taking that chip and get this thing out of here. Give me a big bar, you know, I'm a man, kind of thing. And so they wasted not, and thus they wanted not. So that's the takeaway. So dig into it yourself. See what the Lord has for you in that particular verse. But in that idea, I'm going to go with the direction that the King James goes. You could probably guess that because that's the title of the sermon, The Tillage of the Poor. And as I think about that, this idea here of not wasting that which we have, the resources we have, I'm reminded of what the Lord said to Moses. So shortly after the Lord called to Moses, I remember in the bush, so Moses is on the backside of the desert, and he, he's going out wandering, looking for his animals or whatever, and he comes across this burning bush. And like all of us, he starts to talk to the burning bush. And he has this conversation, and we realize it's the Lord, because the bush is burning, but it is not being consumed. And so in this process of interacting with the Lord as this burning bush, the Lord calls out to him, and, Moses, and he essentially sends Moses on a mission. He calls Moses. And then Moses objects to the mission. And we read in Exodus chapter 4, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. The mission was that he was to go and represent the nation of Israel and lead them out of slavery. Go and speak to the Pharaoh. And Moses says, nobody's going to believe me. No one's going to listen to me. They're going to say you didn't hear the Lord. You didn't see the Lord. Now, the Lord's response is so simple. In verse 2, next verse, it says, The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And Moses replied, it is a staff. I think we can reverentially add, it's just a staff. Okay, so I have a staff in my hand. Now everyone's going to listen? No, right? So it's not going to be this staff, but the Lord says, what's in your hand? And he says, it's just a staff. And the Lord doesn't say this, but essentially he says to him, perfect, we'll use that then. And you know the story, throw it down, it becomes a snake, and you know all these things, or put it into the water, it'll become blood, lift it up, and this will happen, and so on and so forth. And I think too often, too many people, too many people respond to God's call or life circumstances in Moses' initial fashion. It's just a staff. What am I going to do with this staff? And so people will say things like this. How am I ever going to accomplish anything of significance? I'm just a school teacher. I'm just a housewife. I'm just a secretary. I'm just a factory worker. How could God ever use a person like me? Essentially, that's saying it's just a staff. What's God going to do? Why will anyone listen to me? Go back to the verse in Proverbs. How will I ever produce enough for my family when I have just this little parcel of land? And as the verse tells us there, where is it at? Much food is in the tillage of the poor. Much food is in the tillage of the poor. If you do nothing, you will definitely not produce enough for your family, right? And too often we make the, the excuse of doing nothing based on the perception that we have nothing. And so we don't move forward. I'm just a secretary. I'm just a teacher or what have you. Solomon exhorts his readers, no, no, you need to think otherwise about things. And I think this verse here, particularly as it's worded in the King James, it's an encouragement for those of us that would classify ourselves as ordinary. And I, I think every one of us in this room, as I look around, 
All right? I think every one of us in this room, we would classify ourselves as ordinary. We're not some great people that, you know, people flock to to come here and listen to and give. We're not gurus or something like that, that people want to know the great wisdom that we have. We are those without extraordinary amounts of resources or abilities or influence. And this is a word for us to take what you do have, be diligent, be industrious, be available for God to work through. And the example of Scripture is that God will work through you. It's just a staff. But look what the Lord did using that particular staff as Moses interacted with the world leaders and with his people. And so the first thing then is we take away our responsibility to utilize even the smallest of gifts that we might have, is to utilize those things that the Lord might work. Do what you can and do it well. And don't give in to the temptation of convincing yourself because that because you can do seemingly so little, you might as well do nothing. If all of us took that response, this, this nation, I'll just say it from that perspective, is somewhat of a pristine nation in the 1600s, let's say. If everyone took that perspective of, well, I can't do much, so I might as well do nothing, then nothing would have been accomplished uh, in our nation and certainly in our lives. Responsibility does not diminish because of the size of our gifts or our resources. In fact, we learn just the opposite in the New Testament. We learn in the New Testament, as Jesus is teaching, that we, he says we are not ju- judged on, uh, or ju- the judgment on our lives is not based on what we bring to the table and even what we end up with, but it's based on our level of faithfulness with what we've been given. It's all based on faithfulness. And I heard someone say this. He said, although it does not matter very much to anybody but yourself what you do, it matters all the world to you. And I agree with that. Be faithful with the small amount of gifts and resources that you were entrusted with, and the Lord will see that and the Lord will honor that. So that's the first thing that we can take away from this verse about the tillage of the poor. The second thing, as we talk about this idea of an ordinary person, the ordinary person can learn this, the importance of cultivating the little we do have. That's the tillage. The importance of cultivating, developing the little that we do have. There's an old fable And it told of a man who told his children to dig all over the field that he owned and they would find treasure. And so these young men, uh, teenagers or perhaps a little bit older, older, they were motivated by the possibility of finding much treasure. And so they dug and they dug and they dug, but they never did find any gold. But what they did discover, however, was a much improved cultivated field that was perfect for planting and reaping. And it was in that reaping, just like their father had told them, that the sons brought in much treasure. And so the importance, you go back to, of cultivating the little that we do have. And so you ask yourself, well, what gifts and resources do I have? Use those. As you ask that question, as you begin to answer that question, use them and be diligent about developing them that they might produce an even greater harvest. And then I think there's an additional application here. So those two things take away just normal living of life. But I think there's a spiritual application uh, regarding spiritual growth in our lives from this verse. And I think it's a perfect question as we approach the start of the new year. Because you hit the start of a new year, whether it's a new school year or a new calendar year or what have you, and you begin to think about things. All right, what do I want this year to look like? What do I want to do with my life? What trends, what patterns do I want to set uh, in my particular life? And so here's the question. What will you do to cultivate spiritual growth in your life this year. 
Now, you may hear that question and immediately think of that verse as it's worded in the ESV. Well, I just have a tiny little parcel of land. And you might initially think, you know, I don't have too much time to really invest into my spiritual growth. I'll be honest, Greg, you're lucky I'm here because I'm a busy guy. I got lots of things to do. I got places to be and so on. So I don't have time, too much time to really invest into my spiritual growth. To that, I would say this. Much food is found in the tillage of the poor. Much food is found in the tillage of the poor. And to that, you probably think, what are you talking about? And I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. I will say this. Take advantage of the time that you do have and invest that into your spiritual growth. Would an hour of Bible study of day, a day do you well? Sure. And some of you are thinking, I don't have an hour of day. And I understand. Most of us, we, we probably do if we really dug in and found it. We probably do. And yes, an hour of Bible study a day, personal Bible study a day would do you well. But most of us would say we don't have that. And I would say this. Well, just because you may not have an hour to invest into personal Bible study each day doesn't mean you should throw out Bible study altogether. And so maybe you don't have an hour a day to pray and to look into the Word and consider certain things. Surely we would all agree that five minutes a day is better than zero minutes a day. Would we all agree with that? And so you go out and you get yourself a little devotional that takes five minutes to, to read and has maybe a passage for you to think on. That's better than doing nothing. Pick up your uh, daily bread that is out there that's been around for a long time, uh, those daily bread things, and read through that. Surely that is better than doing nothing. But often we think, well, I don't have much time, so what's the use or I only have a little parcel of land, so why bother planting anything on it? You cultivate that land. You cultivate that little bit of time that you do have, and you will find fruit that is being produced as a result of doing so. And then you know what's going to start happening? You'll be taking five minutes a day, and then something will catch your attention, and suddenly you'll keep reading a little further. Next thing you know, you're taking 10 minutes a day, and you're deciding, oh, I don't have time to get on Facebook because I want to read for 15 minutes today. And it's just the way it works. You begin to cultivate the little that you do have, and you will see dividends on your investment. May I please exhort you, if you don't have a personal time in God's Word every day, or close, as close to that as you can, start that this year. Your walk with Jesus will be transformed. Your heart will be filled with his love. People will notice that. They'll be drawn to that like it's, I think it's in Timothy. They'll say to you, hey, what's the reason for the hope that you have within you? Then you'll begin to share the reason. I've been digging into God's word. He's teaching me. I'm growing. I'm learning. And they'll say, I'd like to know this God of yours. And you'll say, great. And you'll tell them about the Lord. Then you'll be fired up and people will be like, look at that guy. That's a wise person. I want to hang out with that person. And it's a big cycle. And it's very exciting. All right. So get into the word. Amen, friends, this year. Uh, we have, by the way, something out at the table, I think. Anna, you hear that, that uh, through the Bible thing? Is that out there? So a little piece of paper, you don't know where to start. It just tells you, read these couple chapters each day, that kind of thing. That's a simple thing you can pick up, um, but I just encourage you in that area. A couple more verses. Verse 24, it says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Often we hear, spare the rod, spoil the child. It, it comes essentially from this idea. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Some of your versions end that verse by saying, uh, but whoever loves him disciplines him early. Diligent, gets to it right away. And so either of those ideas, diligent to discipline him, disciplines him early. I think an important verse. 
especially in our day and age, we, we have in our day and age something that is referred to, uh, scientifically referred to this, maybe not scientifically, uh, but like people that are smart, actually there, there's a term to define this and it's called permissive parenting. And they say that in a very positive term that we, we need to move into more of a society of permissive parenting. Solomon's word of caution to parents is that any parent that chooses to spare the rod, that speaks of the idea of disciplining their children, that chooses to spare the rod in their child's life actually harms their child. He goes so far as even to say that such a decision of sparing the rod, of not disciplining their children, that such a decision actually shows hate for their child. Now, I imagine if we were to talk with um, folks that buy into the so-called permissive parenting camp, and we were to ask them, they would, they would never agree that failure to discipline or lack of discipline it, uh, of their child is a mark of hate for their child. Yet Solomon says that it is. I imagine if we were to ask those individuals, they would likely say it's because of their love for their child that they choose to ignore their child's poor behavior. Because they love little Johnny so much or little Sally is so cute, she didn't really mean it or whatever. Did you see this video that was going around Facebook of this little guy? He's a little guy. You see that one? No, okay. And, and he's talking about Linda. Linda, you're not listening, Linda. Linda's his mom. Linda needed to not spare the rod. You know, instead, I don't know if Linda did, but Linda's filming the thing because of how cute little Billy was or whatever as Billy was telling Linda off, essentially. Solomon says, look, that's a mistake, the idea of sparing the rod. Because he says, he'll say here, you keep doing that. You keep saying it's cute. You keep making excuses for it. You're ultimately going to ruin that child, is what Solomon says. Matthew Henry said this. Listen to these words. It's so wise. He wrote in the 1700s. He said, that branch is easily bent when it is tender. That branch is easily bent when it is tender. Parents have been entrusted with their children to shape them, especially when they're young. The branch is easily bent when it is tender. Sadly... When that shaping is neglected when the child is young, then it can't be bent any longer. It has to be broken, and it has to be snapped. And so you think of a tender little branch that you can bend and mold and shape, and then you think of a strong branch, and if you try to bend it, it's just going to snap. And that breaking needs to take place then, since the bending didn't take place, the breaking needs to take place when the child grows into adulthood. And that's a whole lot more messy, more painful, and more difficult. Because then the school needs to get involved if the kid is going off to school somewhere because the parents didn't do a diligent job when, they, when the child was young. Or the boss has to get involved and because you're not in line with what needs to happen here, you get fired. Or law enforcement needs to get involved and then breaking needs to take place until the person is brought in line. And so this idea of withholding punishment from a child when that punishment is deserved is to encourage the child in his or her sin. And it's ultimately to contribute to their eventual ruin. Some of you may recall there was a Dr. Benjamin Spock. And Dr. Spock, he was an American pediatrician. He wrote a best-selling book. As a matter of fact, it's one of the best-selling books of all time, although a lot of those numbers have changed because there's a lot more people now. So if you have a bestseller now, it's probably going to 
jump up to the top of the list, but at least at the time, it was one of the best sellers. It was called Baby and Child Care. It came out in 1946, and his ideas were considered revolutionary. You know why they were considered revolutionary? Because they were revolutionary. He introduced, his basic premise was this, that parents should listen to their children, nothing wrong with that, but parents should listen to their children and appreciate their children's individual differences. Even when those individual differences disagreed or differed from mom and dad. So essentially, let the kids do what they want to do. That's part of their development process there. And essentially, what Spock said was that correction and other forms of discipline were limiting to children and should be avoided. And many people bought in. Generation, a generation of people brought in. I find it interesting to note that after a lifetime of work, Spock himself concluded that his parenting parenting advice had been very much off the mark. And in an interview with the Tampa Tribune in 1974, he said that his parenting advice had been all wrong. He said it, that it had been all wrong. Unfortunately, a generation of parents took his advice. He would later, and I know some of you are old hippies, no offense to you, but he would later blame the hippie movement and the question authority and all of that on his parenting advice and his book that came out. The impact of the decisions of parents to buy into his teaching likely is still being felt in our nation. The parent that genuinely loves his or her child will do the hard and steady work of training and correcting their child, and they will do so from a young age. Now, as a parent who raised little guys, that's hard work, and that requires That's not a one-and-done kind of thing. Hey, man, we had this talk when you were two. I explained it to you. Come on, what's going on? That's something you just have to keep pouring into. And there are times, and my wife would say, Greg, oh, here we go. And I'd have to get up off the couch to go have the conversation. But if you don't have that particular conversation, you're not consistent, steady, not involved in that daunting effort of raising your sons or your daughters and correcting them when you need to, then your, your son or your daughter is going to feel the consequences for it. It is for their benefit as parents that we pour into them. And I think what the Lord does is he puts such a love in the hearts of a parent that they're willing to do all of that hard work of disciplining their child as need be so that their child can grow and have success in life. Again, verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And now our final verse, verse 25, it says the righteous has enough excuse me, to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers once, want. As Solomon here, he silently exhorts us. He doesn't come out at the end of every verse to say, choose wisdom, you know, run away from foolishness. But as he paints this contrast, the, the choice is obvious. Choose the way of wisdom. And he reminds us here that the Lord promises to supply the needs of the righteous. Now, certainly I think that's physical. But I think it also speaks to our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, our psychological needs and appetites, uh, and so on. And God ensures that the needs of the righteous will be supplied while the wicked will suffer want. As we've been saying, God cannot bless wickedness, and he refuses to do so. And the reason why he refuses to do so in hopes that the pain that the absence of his blessing brings will bring the person to their senses. That's why he won't bless wickedness, because he wants them to feel the consequences of their decision 
so that in feeling the consequences of the decision, they'll come to their senses. You remember in the New Testament, you have the story of the prodigal son. And it's the parable of this son that has the nerve to go to his living dad and say, Dad, you're taking too long to die. Can I have my inheritance now? And so he, the dad remarkably says, all right, well, here, here's your inheritance. And the son takes it and he says, good riddance. And he takes off and he goes, as the passage says, and he spends it all on reckless and riotous living. And as you read in Luke chapter 15, it says that he squanders all of those resources on those things. He comes upon hard times. And it says in the verse that he began to be in need, starving, as the passage indicates. And this is what Jesus then shares in the context of this parable. He says, but when the man came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. His pain, and I find it interesting, it's his physical pain from a belly that was suffering one, just like our verse talks about. His pain led him to the place of repentance. And that's one of the main reasons why God removes his hand of blessing and protection from those that have wandered away from his will. It's to bring the person to repentance. So believe it or not, it's God's grace to allow us to experience the consequences of our action. Because we, we want to say, well, no, no, grace says to overlook it. That's not grace. God's grace is bringing us to the place of repentance. How he's going to accomplish that in this instance here is that the person would experience the pain of the consequences of their decision and their action. That's God's grace to bring us to repentance. And the challenge for us sometimes is we want to intervene and we want to protect the person. And so you think of a parent intervening on behalf of their children to protect their child from the consequences of their actions. And as parents, we're tempted to do that. And we want to intervene. Sometimes we may be doing more harm than good. That that intervention is hindering the work that God is trying to do in their lives. And so throughout our study of this book, again, we remind ourselves the Lord blesses and the Lord removes his hand of, ble of blessing on folks as they choose to either walk in his ways or rebel against those ways. And Solomon reminds us in this verse that God satisfies the appetite of the righteous. Walk in his ways so you can experience his blessing. One final point I'll make about this that I think we can glean from this verse is this. It is the mark of the wise and the righteous to not only have enough, as it says here, but to know that they have enough. And that speaks to this idea of contentment. And how sad it is that when, despite all that a person has, they're still not satisfied because of the things that they do not have. And I think, again, when, I was, when my kids were little, my mom was crazy. She would buy a mount, like this high of Christmas gifts, and they'd be spread out for a mile in, in this room, this living room we have. And the kids would open one thing and open another thing and throw it away, and we're, and they'll stop and look at it, you know, this kind of, and we're trying to talk to the kids, but they were just continually going on the next thing, not appreciating the thing that they received, and we would have to talk to mom, and you got to ease up with the gifts, give it to Robin and I, we'll take them, you know, the stuff you want to give uh, to us here, but this idea of contentment, it's the mark of a wise and righteous individual that the attitude of their heart will be one of contentment, that they are satisfied with what they have, they're content in those things. And Paul, again, I, I go back to the New Testament, Paul dug into this. 
uh, quite a bit, about six or eight verses in the book of First Timothy. He said this to Timothy. He said, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing, anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, will we, will we, be, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, uh, with many pangs. If you find that it is difficult for you to be content, according to Paul and according to Solomon, that should be to you an alarming trend in your life. You should be concerned about your discontentment. And so you might say, yeah, sure, my car is nice, but it's not as nice as the guy down the street. That sort of an attitude should alarm you. Of course, I have a nice, safetable, comfortable home, but it's no, that should concern you. Sadly, people do that with their spouses. Yeah, sure, my spouse is okay, but, and so on and so forth. An alarming trend. There are, that is an alarming attitude, and that attitude of discontentment needs to be guarded against because godliness with contentment is great gain. And I would also say this, it's incredibly freeing. It's incredibly freeing to be able to live life in such a way that you're content with what you have, and you're not always looking out beyond for other things that you, that you currently do not have, Right? And so if you notice that in your heart, bring it to the Lord, let him search it out, confess it as sin, and let the Lord change that in you. And so that's where we're going to stop today. We finished up chapter 13. I'd encourage you to read chapter 14. Uh, We'll probably do half of the chapter the next time we are together, but read the entire chapter. And I'd encourage you also, here we are, the beginning of a new year, set up a plan for yourself. If need be, take five minutes a day to begin, begin considering spiritual things, and you will see the fruit of even that little small investment in your life, okay? Much food is in the tillage of the poor. Love that verse. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that reality. And Lord, we we do pray that for each of us, Lord, even if uh, it seems like a small investment, that we would recognize that that investment with your blessing is going to bring about a great dividend. And Lord, you would prompt each of our hearts Lord, you develop us in this year in our prayer life. Lord, you would develop us this year in our study of your word and fellowship and seeking out good and godly fellowship with others and using our gifts and resources for the advancement of the kingdom. Lord, all of these important disciplines would be cultivated this year and you would bring about much fruit so we would be standing at this time next year looking back and saying, wow, look what the Lord did Lord, we want you to accomplish good things in our hearts. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone. And through us, and we make ourselves available for you to do that. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.